So welcome to another installation of the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. Uh, and we are uh, visited today by Leslie Green, Professor of Anthropology uh, and the founding director of Environmental Humanities South uh, at University of Cape Town. And she will be talking about her new book, uh, Rock Water Life, Ecology and Humanities for Decolonial South Africa. So I'm just going to leave the floor to you, Leslie. Right. <laughs> Thank you very much um, for this invitation. It's really wonderful to be with you and to have the opportunity to speak about a book that, um, as one does, it took quite a few years to, to develop. So, um, yeah, I started writing this in 2012. But um, what I'd like to do is, is share my screen um, and uh, take you through the book with um, a couple of main images. So let me just flip over to sharing screen. That's the title of the book. Now, one of the reasons why it becomes so interesting to talk about this book today is that this chart was published today in The Guardian um, based on a report by the Swiss insurance giant called RE, or RE, however one says it, in Switzerland. And um, the um, astonishing thing is that out of the G20 countries, South Africa is listed as the highest in terms of damage to ecosystems, so degradation of ecosystems. So, you know, in terms of their index, we've got a 40% degradation of 40% fragile ecosystems and 0% intact ecosystems. So South Africa beats China, South Africa beats Brazil. Um, it, you know, it's, it's quite an astonishing thing that even with all its fires last year, Australia still comes in in better shape than, than South Africa. And there's quite a significant jump between the South African figure on that index and the Australian one, the next one down. And I think to me, this indicates really strongly that there's a problem with, with the way that, as, as the insurance industry is pointing out here, we are only able to live because one of the things in this book was a sense that there was something really, really wrong with the way that we were thinking about environment. My question was, in South Africa, given the extent to which environmentalism is considered a, a white and privileged issue, um, how on earth do we begin to shift our environmentalism to be inclusive, to not be seen as specifically white and to not be addressing specifically white issues. Now, to give you some examples, this um, picture here on the left, Save the Rhino Hunter Poacher, was one of the bumper stickers that um, was driving around in Cape Town on, as you can see, Mercedes Benzes. And I took this photograph at the petrol station, gas station, around the corner from my house, just down the road from UCT made me think we have to rethink this because to speak about hunting a poacher is language of genocide. It's the language that was used over a hundred years ago in the colonial era. It's the language that, that, um, that was used genocidally against the San um, when there were quite literally San hunting parties that uh, Lawrence van der Post speaks about in some of his books, having grown up with um, the background of that. Um, this hunting of, of Bushman, San, and uh, he speaks about that really movingly in one of his books. Um, so there's a sense of, of you know, we're, we're going to fight extinction by being racist. 
and this was not an isolated example. Uh, all over the north of the country, where particularly where the, where the game reserves were based, they were the same kind of language. You know, hunt the poacher on Facebook or in the most apparently innocuous um, hiking clubs. You would find astonishing racism being legitimated by the fact that it was environmentalist. So, for example, when um, some poachers, often if in the case of Kruger Park, um, uh, impoverished Mozambicans working for larger gangs, international cartels, crossing the border to to shoot a rhino and take its horn. Um, it, you know, where there was a story about that in the media, it would be circulated in on Facebook and other settings with people saying the most vile things like castrate the poachers. And there was even a bumper stick that went around um, quite literally with the graphic of, of somebody being a, a black body being castrated. And the irony was that this Palala Rhino Sanctuary, in fact, was also actually a hunting farm. So if you're a wealthy dentist, you too could go to Palala, pay $5,000 um, for the cheapest animal, which I think was one of the buck. Uh, to hunt one of those um, and they also were um, marketing the opportunity to shoot lions so in other words they were doing canned lion hunting as well so you know there's this extraordinary set of, of contradictory and conflicting um, values in this that, that made no sense at all and on the right here something that also popped up in in my facebook feed at the time was this extraordinary image which came from the south african museum known as Iziko. Um, which is a seal from the British in, I think it was dated sometime 1825, 1830. That office is now the deeds office where I register property ownership for my house. Um, and this was at that time branded as the office of slaves and deeds. So where you would register your property of the house that you lived in is also the place that you would register slaves. I was horrified by that, but but just gobsmacked to discover that that was considered a progressive move because until the British occupied the Cape and managed to set up registration of slaves, slaves had no legal existence whatsoever. So that stamp, which indicates that a slave was as much property as a piece of land um, was considered a progressive move. So again, you know, how is it that, uh, uh, what, what's the relationship between slave as object and land as object? Is there a difference? So try to think through along with Latour, the, the great bifurcation of modernist thought um, between subjects and objects between, if, if you want, um, um, the well, I was going to talk about Povernelli, but maybe that later. But you know, to 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 look at this this categorization of objects, land as object, and black body as object, was uh, something that really made me think. There's something important here that I need to try to investigate and, and try to understand in terms of the ways we do environmentalism, um, the way we think about land, the way we think about animals. Um, there's something important here that I need to try to understand um, that affects both people and, and animals. Now, at the time, I was doing a lot of cycling around Cape Town, and just to give you a sense of, this was the kind of, on the left, um, the kind of landscape when I was cycling through, 
and when you're cycling through there, um, that uh, landscape is round about here where I've got my, my arrow and heading towards Cape Point in the south over there straight ahead. Um, and so I was doing a lot of cycling here um, in this area. And by the way, I chose this map because it's an unusual map of Cape Town because it shows Cape Town's river basins and more on that later. Um, but you can see Cape Town is an extraordinary place. If you think of South Africa as a dry place, Cape Town has got a lot of water, um, gets a lot of rainfall. Uh, it's a very green area for the most part. Um, and it's very proud of its, its environmentalism um, because particularly down this peninsula from, from at the top here where it says Cape Town at number A all the way down to number C, there's um, a mountain chain that um, forms part of the Table Mountain National Park. So I'll be cycling around here quite regularly and going past um, these pristine nature reserves, beaches, but also going past shack settlements and going past um, you know, every demographic from extreme wealth to extreme poverty. And in the middle of all of that were the baboons and were the nature reserves. Um, and again, you know, cycling around, the amazing thing about cycling is, is your bicycle is the connector. Things just didn't connect. So I set about starting to write a series of, of chapters that tried to make sense of what I was seeing. And I wanted to focus on the environmental struggles at the time um, because there were so many of them and they were characterized by such intense polemic, um, a, a kind of polemic that felt frankly unresolvable over and over again. So the six, in the, in the end, the book focuses on six studies. The first is Cape Town's name natures, the many different kinds of natures that, um, that through which Table Mountain and Cape Town's environment has been described. And uh, I'll come back to that later. The second looked at the central area of, of, the, of southern South Africa, southern part of South Africa, in an area known as the Karoo, which comes from a Kweh word meaning desert. And that was subject to the risk of fracking in an ongoing way. There's, 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 there's the risk that that whole area is going to be fracked. Um, and there too, the environmental struggle was, was interesting because the fracking was being opposed by an historically inaccurate idea of the Karoo as this pristine landscape, when in fact, it's not a pristine landscape. It's a landscape that's been severely degraded by overstocked sheep farms for over a hundred years. So, you know, my grandfather's uniform as a soldier fighting for the British in World War I would have been made from wool that came from the Karoo um, that was made possible by the invention of the windmill. So much like the American Plains, the invention of the windmill makes it possible to bring up water and you don't need knowledge of where the little streams and springs are. You just need to be able to put a windmill down um, with the consequent effects on, on the loss of population, genocidal, effects of, of driving people off the land. So an ecocide and a genocide. So again, there's this idea that this pristine landscape um, is opposing a um, the, is opposing fracking, but that's not historically accurate. Um, and so again, I thought, well, you know, the, 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 the environmentalists here are about to lock themselves into a corner. They're about to, you know, paint themselves into a situation where they can't get out of because all the oil companies need to do is say, well, it's not pristine, the landscape's degraded anyway, and then they've got their, their license to frack you know, in, 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 in the public mind. So there had to be another way of, of framing that argument. 
another set of arguments has to do with plant medicine. Um, I'm moving on to chapter three. And our team that I've been part of, we called ourselves the ABC team because we comprised anthropology, botany, and chemistry. Um, we began to start to think about um, indigenous medicine, but uh, you know, plant medicine, but that was very difficult to do because our former president, Tabombeki, had taken the position of wanting to use indigenous plant medicine to combat AIDS. And there was this science war that erupted as a result. That came up again in, in, the, science, in, in the science must fall struggles where the roads must fall students um, attempted to take on science and it, it really backfired. So again, a sense of an argument being had that's impossible to have on the terms. How do we change the terms of argument? Similarly for soil and for land struggles, um, I was astonished that struggles for land, for the restitution of land that had been stolen by settlers, you know, settler colonials 200 years ago or more, um, that the struggles around land were struggles about around territory and fences and property rather than quality of soil. The soils are degraded. So what will it mean to do land restitution and restore access to land to black families that were chased off land? if the soil is unviable. Similarly, the struggle around baboons, um, how do you protect baboons when baboon becomes a racist insult, um, along with other, all sorts of other simian insults um, that I'm sure I don't need to, to um, even begin to describe. Um, so there's a sense there too that the city was managing baboons um, in an extraordinary way because there was this baboon criminology that was being developed. So the way that the baboons were being managed in this urban context was that if a baboon uh, broke and entered a, you know, a, a car that was occupied, it was set, you know, set coded this way. And if, if a baboon broke and entered an unoccupied car, you know, it was coded another way, if it, you know, similarly with a house or an unoccupied house, occupied house. And if a particular baboon, as watched by the monitors paid for by the city, got three strikes against it, three points against it in a month, it was quite literally killable because that was the terms of, of, through which baboon culling was going to be made um, uh, rational. So there's this kind of baboon criminology that develops that has really interesting integrations with, with um, racist fears of invasion and hijacking. And uh, you know, the headlines are full of this, this language of um, invasions, hijacking, mugging, etc. So, yeah. And then finally, the last chapter looks at the changes in the ocean, um, both chemically and ecologically, where quite literally our colleagues in, in marine management speak of um, an, an ocean, an ecological regime shift, and using this very militarized, militaristic language of invasion biology, um, and a whole lot of questions around the, the management of the ocean, um, because that management was landing up in courts, type, you know, for, for 15, 16 years, um, the proposal to, to manage the ocean and manage fisheries catch allocations was contested by small-scale fishers. So all of these struggles, all of these situations were um, were really fascinating to try to do really in-depth research 
on them and try to understand what kind of thinking was going on, how were particular dramas being scripted and performed and enacted, what versions of nature were being enacted, and, and what kinds of violence were being built in to the forms of environmentalism. So uh, the conclusion um, is really a plea for a different kind of eco-politics that um, is not only allied, you know, it's not only an environmentalism that is allied with justice, but it's actually fundamentally rethought as an eco-politics. And I'll come back to that later. So I've put a couple of um, images together that also that of, from the book, um, which I think might help make sense of the book for those of you that haven't had the chance to read it. But this was a, a, a map um, of South Africa drawn in the 1720s. Um, it was drawn in German um, and there was a Latin version. And astonishingly, it's the only version of any map that I could find that actually shows over here um, the settlement of the Que at the Cape. This is now central Cape Town. So if you think back to that little map that I showed you, it would be at the north where that A was. That's Table Bay. This is Table Bay. Um, and this is the only image that I found of, of, of a Que settlement, also known as Hottentot or Koi Koi. And why that was significant was there was, you know, I had I just read a paper by um, two scholars who had scoured the French and Dutch archives of Europe um, and British archives, uh, the French, the Dutch and the British all having colonized the Cape at one time or other, uh, the French very, very briefly. But so they scoured, these two librarians scoured the archives and could not find a single map that showed where the Quay lived. And um, I had just finished writing this chapter and went to go and have coffee with a friend of mine by their invitation at a, at a local art gallery. And I was paging through the posters and there up pops this map with a, with a very clear image of, of the settlement. So it took me a couple of years to actually track this image down and find that it was written by um, a, a rebel a rebel German who lived at the Cape, who was not uh, much loved by the authorities at all, who had written two a, a, a double volume on Hottentot Que life. Um, and he had drawn this in. And the reason that it not popped up in the search done by the two librarians was that because this version, the German version and the Latin version have this map, but when the English and the Dutch versions of the book were, were printed, they separated these out. And so you've got a picture of life at the Cape and then you've got a map. Um, so again, the, the sense of, of terra navius gets established in this particular way. Um, one of the ongoing struggles in Cape Town is over water. And this image was from the Dutch archives of, of the 1630s showing the management, the proposed management of water to set, create a settlement at the Cape, um, which would be able to provide sailors headed for India and Indonesia with fresh water and fresh vegetables. So on the right over here, you've got a lake that's surrounded by vegetation. And this was the plan to have um, a dam um, 
And note here, what you've got here is labor. You've got a black body resting over a barrel. We've got steps going down, but the stream that's enclosed and then a fortified structure. To my knowledge, this was never built as such, but this was one of the original plans. And the, the script here describes the old standing water um, and then the proposal is for this for this dam. And why I found this map, this image so fascinating was because when you have, once you've got walls around water like this, once you've dammed water, you no longer have a process that cleans it like as the reeds and the plants do. And you need laws. And the first, the first South African environmental law was around that particular stream um, in, in the 1650s, which said, don't muddy the stream, don't dirty the stream. So you need laws and you need labor. And you've got a hardening of the boundary between solid and liquid. So you don't have what um, my lovely friend Boroslav Shishinsky from Lancaster University describes as a colloid, you know, a mud-like or humus-like substance that's neither a liquid nor a solid. Um, modernity rests on the controlling of the boundary between solid and liquid in these kinds of ways to keep liquid clear. But in order to keep the, the dammed waters clear, you need laws and you need labor. Um, and so just in the act of damming, you've replaced an ecological cleaning with um, a socio-political and legal situation. Um, I'll skip through that for now because I'm just watching the time. Um, and that one too. So So fast forward from the 1650s with the taking over of the water bodies of, at the Cape and the struggles over water to the student struggles of 2015, 2016, um, and the beginning of the Roads Must Fall movement, um, which then morphed into um, a hashtag, Science Must Fall, which was used as the ridicule of the roads must fall movement. And it really, it was something that really, really hurt the, the RMF group because it was used to make them look so ridiculous. But in the chapter, what I tried to do is go through the exact arguments that were being made, which all rested on, on uh, Isaac Newton and whether, I, I, you know, questioning whether Isaac Newton was the only one who was, you know, the, the father of science and whether the father of science was necessarily a, European. Um, and it was truly um, astonishing to dig into the, the life of Isaac Newton and discover that although the woman on the left in this montage, photo montage picture with a lightning, she's, um, um, she, was the, she was the speaker um, and she's, she's calling for um, more research on indigenous knowledge. And she used the example of, of lightning, lightning strikes, as previously politicians have done too. Um, and her, her call for an investigation into indigenous knowledge, particularly on the back of the Tabombeki rejection of indigenous plant knowledge for, well, you know, rejection of science in the favor of, of indigenous plant knowledge. Um, her call for, 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 for indigenous knowledge was, was just mocked and ridiculed. 
But as I read Isaac Newton, I discovered, well, actually, Isaac Newton was an alchemist. Um, and uh, on his death, his papers that explored alchemy and his papers that explored mathematics were went their separate ways. They were divided into two different sets. And the one got published as, as, as his science and the other got, um, got largely ignored. So there was such extraordinary scientific history to explore and to, to think through. Um, in the chapter on soil, um, that's the chapter where I really began to try to think through histories of environmentalism. My great, great, great grandparents are quite likely to be in this sketch, which was done in the town of Grahamstown in Eastern Cape in the 1640s of the elephant hunting. And why I say that some of my relatives might be there is as I dug into my own history, um, trying to think through what it means to be an environmentalist. Um, I was, uh, yeah, um, pretty much blown away to discover that um, on my father's side, there were great, great, great uncles um, and grandfather who had a record of shooting 100 elephants in one day with their new elephant gun at the mouth of the Fish River, which was a border um, between the the Amakosa and, and the British at the time. So again, what does it mean to be a conservationist calling for um, environmentalism, cutting black life particularly off out of conservation and environmentalism through the financial system of, of access and entry to the South African game reserves, which make it impossible for any but, anyone but the, the wealthiest to, to access them. Um, what does it mean to be a conservationist, um, but to be ignorant of, of, of the history of white settlers and the ecocide that white settlers have been part of to such a degree that um, by the 1880s, the entire South Africa had come under British control. Um, uh, thanks to Cecil John Rhodes. Picture here from Punch. Um, yeah. Uh, I think I'll stop there. The last chapter speaks to the last two chapters speak to the one is the baboons and baboon management um, and the different versions of what it is to be a baboon. Top left is um, top left is a baboon that was in the employ of the South African railways uh, because his boss had lost his legs in an accident. And this baboon at the end of his life received a salary in paid and tobacco to manage the railway. Um, which he did on the instruction of his boss. <laughs> um, and then here's a, a, a copy of a rock painting um, indicating uh, baboons as part of the sand life in, in the therianthropic spaces, the space where people becoming animals. And you know, there was it's fascinating to look through the, the history of baboon images in, in sand rock art. No, yes. no, she dropped out. It looks like she dropped out. So the connection did get lost. Um, so, but hopefully she'll call back into the call. Um, so, for all of you who are still here, hang on. One of the advantages of the Zoom uh, international world is we can have this conversation with someone, um, you know, who's far away in space and 
Um, but it also, of course, comes with its technical challenges. Yeah. Oh, hello, Amy. Yeah, there you go. Are. Okay. <laughs> so, well, what I was just uh, telling everybody, and we'll just, uh, you know, go over now to Q and A. I think. Um, yeah. Perfect. Is um, to to ask uh, questions to, or to tell me in the chat that they have a question, and then we'll call on them, or they can write the question in the chat, and I'll ask it. Um, and so, um, I guess the first thing I wanted to ask myself has to do with the title. Mm then uh, rock and then hmm. this vertical slash water, vertical slash life. Um, and what you're thinking of that particular choice uh, for the title was. Wow, great question, thank you. Um, what I was trying to think together is that, you know, traditionally we think of rock as totally separate from life. We have this division of life and non-life um, it, then there's the, the fetish of cement in modernist living to put a boundary um, between states of matter, between, you know, between uh, particularly rock and water. And then with life, I was thinking not only of biological life, of course, but, um, but political life, you know, and to, to try to expand the sense of life and to say that both rock and water and life are bound up in politics. There isn't a, just a politics of, of life, I mean, as, as Bruno Latour has, has so beautifully explained in so many ways. Um, and so, so this is really a book um, that tried to bring a different sense of the elements of politics into the conversation to say, we can't just do politics to the exclusion of life and rock and water you know it's 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 all in the mix together mm -hmm. that's uh, i mean it's so interesting to think about us needing to rethink how we do environmentalism how you do environmental studies as well and think about these relations as as always political uh, right. So yeah. um, Mehdi had a question here um, asking, could you elaborate on the picture with the lightning? So what, right. in, in what sense is the lightning an indigenous, um, you know, what knowledges were being talked about and discussed in that uh, situation? Mm. Yeah. So um, the first thing to understand is that in, in that image, there's a mockery going on. Um, uh, the, the students who had made this four-minute impassioned plea to take indigenous knowledges seriously had used an unfortunate example she could have used any example but she chose to use example of of lightning um and said that you know in some parts of south africa people believe that that um witches send lightning so of course the whole you can imagine the, the room of scientists erupting with guffaws at that point um, it was an unfortunate example and she, she, she put herself in a trap at that point because that's not something that you can think through easily. Um, but I will say that, that she's not the first to be mocked for asking questions about lightning. And I've, uh, the previous person who was mocked for asking questions around the connection between indigenous knowledge and lightning, um, or even the, just the frequency of lightning, indigenous situations and lightning was um, a member of the Provincial Council on, on uh, Cooperative Governance, which means linking traditional leaders with, with central politics. And uh, she had said, um, we need to investigate 
why there are so many more lightning strikes um, in South Africa. Now, she was pilloried by the black press and the white press alike for asking questions. How could she be so stupid? You know, so it's the iconic stupid indigenous question, you know, inverted commas to ask in South Africa. You know, it's got a history of being laughed at. And yet she was actually asking a very important question because in the previous few years, the insurance companies in South Africa had noted a 400% increase in claims for lightning strikes in the area that she was speaking of. Um, you know, the larger area because of, of likely, likely because of increased storm intensity. But she was pilloried. You don't know why lightning, where lightning comes from. What's your problem? Are you so stupid? You know, you don't deserve to be in office. But it, and so, so part of that issue was, I think, um, learning how to, what I was trying to say in that section with, um, with regards to lightning to the students was, was um, you know, you've got something really important to say but you need to learn to craft your argument um, so that you don't end up in a trap as she ended up in. Okay, and uh, Finarna had a question. Yeah, so thank you for this uh, nice and evocative presentation too, because what it made me think about was the parallels to some ongoing discussions in Norway now. Uh, I mean, we're oh. a producing nation. We are incredibly dependent on the oil. Uh, and more and more people are starting to realize that we need to shift away from the oil. So now the green transition is, is coming up as a theme more and more often. So it has to do both with producing energy, but also with, well, making a living. Got to get money right. somehow. Uh, and, and so there's, there's quite a lot of investment in, in green transition projects um, mm. that are presented as environmentalism. I mean, you have supporters on the environmentalist side, but you also have industrial actors saying, now we are shifting to become more green. Uh, and then it was last week, there was a uh, an article or a commentary in a newspaper written by, uh, by a group that said that this, this green transition, this, this basically this incursion in landscapes through wind turbines and other things is colonialism. So and it was quite fascinating to me to see because this is a way of speaking about Norwegian landscapes that hasn't come up very often. I mean, the environmental justice debate has been very slow uh, in Norway, I think. It was much more visible in Sweden where we were before, uh, but now it's starting to come in Norway. So what would be your advice, I think, both for I mean, academics, but also as, as environmentalists, how to navigate this discussion that will be coming much more. I mean, yes, green transition is a good thing, but it also comes with serious issues. With just the kind of justice costs, right? Mm -hmm. Who pays the costs of those um, movements? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's such a crucial question because financialization of the environment has been one of the major strategies globally um, in terms of red plus politics, where the idea is that you're, you know, as one of the pillars of responding to climate crisis, um, the global community will set up a fund for polluters to pay people in Africa and elsewhere, Latin America, Asia, not to use their forests. So you've got the, the polluter pays principle, and there's this idea that that there's going to be cash flowing to people for not using. But what that means is that the wealthy can continue continue to pollute. So as long as they can pay. So much like 
the wealthy really don't care about a speeding fine. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's not really going to change the way things work. So green capital is, is, a, is a really um, huge concern um, because the assumption is that by financializing the environment, um, creating ecosystem services and putting dollar values on them, um, we can build a better earth. But I think there's huge questions to be posed about that. Um, and I think in many situations, um, it's not inappropriate to use the term colonialism um, to, to describe that process. Uh, for example, in Kenya, um, many Maasai nomadic herders with their cattle in the drought um, have found themselves um, in a position to, that they've got no other option. They don't have support from the state. No other option other than to sell land, and so who's who's picking up that land? But it's um, it's the wind farm people, or it's the conservationists picking up that land. Um, and then what happens is when you have really intense droughts, um, as has happened in southern Kenya for quite a few years now, um, the all but the strongest streams dry up. But those are the streams. That's the land that has been bought. Um, and so, you know, when in the, you ended up in a situation with gun battles over nature conservation ranches owned by British expats, for example, um, or, you know, real struggles over, over wind farms. Wind farms themselves are very interesting to, to think about because wind farms are not actually terribly ecologically friendly. I mean, I don't even be, need to begin to mention the birds, but if you think about the cement platforms and because of the tremendous vibration of those turbines, those cement platforms have to be moved every couple of years. And obviously, depending on the, on the geological conditions, it's more frequently or less frequently. But, um, you know, to, to create um, a, a landscape of wind farms and wind turbines is actually significantly destructive to an ecology, uh, particularly if you've got a drier area, as we have in, in much of, of um, South Africa. Uh, the those great big windmills, um, you know, they have, they're not, that's not only the wind turbine, it's the, the concrete platform that moves and it's the roads for the, for the, for the, for the trucks to get to service the wind turbines. Um, and, and so when you've got a very sensitive environment uh, to, 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 to cut tracks in it and roads in a patchwork is, is really destructive. So I think it's very important to be very careful of claims to the claims made in the name of green capitalism. Another obvious example is titanium mining. And titanium um, is, is this a huge struggle in South Africa, in, uh, both coasts, Indian Ocean and Atlantic Ocean, to fight an Australian titanium mining company. Uh, in both cases, there's significant harm to, to the environment, but titanium is considered a green metal because it's used in some solar panels, um, it's used in sunscreens, it's used in <laughs> it's used in the silver of our of our uh, tablet packets, you know, it's got so many uses. But increasingly it's the claim is it's being marketed as a green metal. And yet if the if the if if, if the, the the actual mining of it is so destructive to people um, and to environments, um, is it truly green? So you know, I think Isabel Stenger's idea of, of, of uh, sorcery 
is really interesting. And she always does this kind of flip of her hand when she talks about sorcery. She's got the stinger's gesture where, where, you know, one thing looks like something, but it in fact is something else. You know, the, the flip, the occult, the occult move is to turn something around and make it look like something else. Um, and I think that's a significant issue of concern in, in green capitalism that the environmentalists really need to be alive to. You know, um, I could go on desalination, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Great. We had a question um, from Aster about the sections of the book. So you titled them with temporalities. So mm. pasts, presents, presents, futures, futures imperfect. Um, so what was your yeah. thinking about the temporalities at play then in, in these stories? Yeah. We have this idea that past, present, and future are so discreet, you know, but they're not. And um, I became so aware, the more I did archival research, and I was cycling around the roads of the peninsula, or I was paddling in the ocean, and, and so aware of the, the presence of histories. You know, for example, a hedgerow that um, the Dutch leader of the Dutch settlers in 1652 put up to, his name is Jan van Riebeck, he put, put up a hedgerow to, of almond, thorny almonds, um, to divide settler land from indigenous land. And that hedge is only exists in one or two trees that are now part of the botanical garden. But that hedge still exists in the maps of Cape Town and in the way race divided across that line. So pasts are present and to be alive to, to those, what um, uh, some scholars have written about as hauntologies. Um, and, and I found that very interesting to think not just of ontologies in, in the, the, the sense of the, the, the kinds of debates that are going on in anthropology globally around um, political ontologies, but to also think of, of, um, of the haunting of the present by that which we don't even know is there. And yet, you know, I mean, the, the absence of elephants, for example, in the Eastern Cape has everything to do with a past that is present, and yet we're not aware of it. And we, we can't actually, until we grapple with it, we, we can't, we're not going to be able to um, have anything like uh, a, a, an environmentalism that is able to address the legacy of race if we're not able to address um, the effects of, of settler ecocide and genocide together. Um, similarly, present futures, um, you know, we, we're moving towards something. We're trying to build something in the now. Um, and those futures, are, the, the ideas that we have of the future are so important. They're as important as ideas of histories. Um, and uh, so the, the, the two chapters on present futures were the chapters went on, on the, on the um, student activism and the other on the attempt to unmake the the um, disposition, land disposition, histories of land disposition. So, you know, people trying to make futures and the struggles that they're coming up with, up against in trying to make futures. And, uh, and then the, the, the real problems in terms of, of the ways in which environmentalists are managing the Cape baboons um, just seems to be so militarized and based on fear and pain and control. You know, it's literally quite literally a militarist operation with paintball guns. Um, and so much the antithesis of anything that that uh, feminist primatology might have come up with. You know, this is 
alpha male primatology in of everything that, that Donna Haraway was talking about in the 1970s and 1980s when she wrote Primate Visions. And, uh, you know, it's, it's working towards apparently an environmentalism that is what we need for our future, but it's really troubled. And similarly, the ocean management, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very troubled. So that, that section, Futures Imperfect, is really trying to grapple with the very troubled forms of um, environmentalism that um, I live with in the city. So Simona Schepler had a, um, a, another question leads right on to that about in the title, you have both ecology and humanities, right? So um, do you see that there's a, is it that ecology and humanities need to come together in some different constellation than they have so far um, in order to address these, these questions and challenges? Or is it that you think they each have a role separately to play? You know, is it, is it a move to, you know, environmental humanities or is it something else that, that you'd like right. to see? Well, thanks. Um, uh, thanks, Simon. Um, it's neither it's neither separate nor joined it's transformative right um i think that the humanities has the capacity to transform the concepts that we're stuck on so in the first chapter for example i was looking at the different um different words used to describe cape town in various ways so there's um there's uh in the, that title of the, of, the, of the first chapter, the subtitle of the first chapter, I used the, the queer word for Table Mountain, um, which would be something like this, um, which was about how the mountain gathers the clouds and causes the rains to fall. Um, and there's that real understanding of the relationality and the guarding of the water. You need to really look after the water and there's a snake in in the well and it's and you know those kinds of um a snake in a spring that you need to be really respectful of and those kinds of ways of thinking are i found really really useful you know our, our rivers in the city would not be such a mess if um if we had that level of respect for for water but that was that was the indigenous um, and one of the first streets that was named in the city was the name was the street here in which was comes from the Dutch East India Company, which had annexed Cape Town, taken over, set up, set up the fort at Cape Town. And that Heerengracht referred to the Heeren 17, the 17 lords back in Amsterdam, who were now in charge of Cape Town. Um, and with that, of course, came a whole new regime of, of rock and lime, beginnings of cement and law, which controlled access to water. Um, and you can imagine it was as much of a, of a political cosmos as as um, because it's referred to powerful people who were represented by militaries and soldiers here. Um, but they, you can you can imagine it must have seemed as absurd a set of beliefs to the to the to the queer who were here at the time, um, and yet because it was enforced with soldiers and violence and torture and dungeons. Um, it, there was no option but to obey it. And not only those, but also smallpox. And by 1710, the Quay had fled the Cape because of the smallpox that had been fostered by the Dutch. 
Um, so, so just, just to, to, to try, try and explain what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to look at how a, a single thing can be different things. So on the one hand, you've got Hurukwacho with its particular nature. Then you've got Hirenkracht with its particular nature. And then in the name of our great um, apparent reconciliation in South Africa, which came with enforced by neoliberalism, the Table Mountain National Park reclaimed the name Hurukwacho and spelt it Hurikwacho with a little TM, little trademark. And they trademarked that and created a whole set of hiking routes. But that too, it's it's a, in, in it, it derives its cosmopolitical power from the little TM on the end, which comes with its own set of laws and international things. So what I'm what I'm trying to draw people's attention to is that there, you know, is is the politics of claiming to speak in the name of nature. So when the the, the kind of alpha primatologists claim to speak in the name of nature um, and, you know, move baboons around and then the baboon gets attacked by a rival male, as happened this weekend, and then they stand back and say, but that's nature. We must let, we must let nature take its course. You know, they've interfered. They have interfered. They're interfering all the time. Um, the, the paintball guns are interfering all the time, right? But then they claim that they speak because they claim to speak in the name of nature, the nature that they define. They're creating a political space um, from which to speak in an unassailable way. That is the power of of white supremacism, rebranded under green. So, you know, if I and I alone define the truth, if I define what is science. And I say there is only one science, and it is my science. And I actively work to block anyone else from doing baboon research. When I was told by the by the by the people don't by the people who manage baboon uh, baboons for the, for the Table Mountain National Park, I said to them, "I'd like to apply for a license to do for a permit to do research on on the baboons." And uh, the person who was who was working there at the time just said to me, "As a friend, I advise you don't even bother." you are just going to be blocked. Don't even try. There's such a rigid control system of who gets to gets these research permits and who doesn't. So rather just go in as a tourist, she said, and, and do your work as a tourist. Don't, don't even bother because you're just going to be blocked. So there's this, there's this politics of science that merges with authority and power in ways that make it acceptable to, to reclaim the power of whiteness, if you say, if you understand what I'm trying to say, the, the 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 capacity to define truth, true nature, when it's unassailable, um, becomes a space in terms of which um, a particular version of the world is outside of politics and gets implemented as such. There's no discussion, um, and it reminds me of my father. You know. Uh, we don't discuss politics at Sunday lunch. We don't discuss politics. You know, this is not a, we don't discuss politics. You know, don't even start. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Does that, does that, so, 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 yeah. So, so the, that's the role of the humanities. The role of the humanities in, in literature, in, in fine art, in creative arts, is, is making different kinds of connections. So the environmental humanities has been incredibly powerful and has taken its lead from literary scholars, film theory theorists, um, you know, 
um, visual arts, performing arts. And a lot of social scientists have, have, have joined in, um, delighted at the possibility of, of learning to speak differently and learning to question, finding a language. So there's been a fascinating convergence between the humanities and science studies in the environmental humanities. That's really powerful for being able to call for a science that is a public science that is accountable to publics in the way that, again, Bruno Latour talks about in his book, Making Things Public, um, Atmospheres of Democracy, calling for the institution of science to be accountable. But at the moment, you've got a, a situation where you've got consultancy science, where people are paid to do a piece of science for the city. Um, there's no accountability. It's not peer reviewed, but it's presented as the science, the one and only truth. Um, and, you know, you're told back off because it's the science and it's always the science is telling us that. <laughs> so, you know, seal your lips. <laughs> There's no more discussion. So the humanities helps us to make different kinds of assemblages, to put things together in different ways, to bring histories and futures um, into this notion of truth that has become so, um, so overwhelmingly white and so very powerful and unable in its, in its version to connect with a black environmental public, which exists, but in a very different form. It exists in struggles over, over, over protection of land against titanium mining, it exists, but the, the conservationists here see that as politics and they don't want to get involved. <laughs> but they don't do politics, they just are consultants, right? So we need to assemble this differently. Thank you, Leslie. That's a, a great answer to uh, a very big and complex question. Uh, and I think mm -hmm. it also brings us back to this idea of this, this transformative way of working uh, in mm -hmm. the environmental humanities as a let's say, best outcome of what we do. Uh, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we are out of time. It is five. So we're going to have to wrap up the discussion now, um, though there's mm -hmm. much more we could have discussed. But I would like to just thank you all for coming. Thank you to you, Leslie. Yeah. Well, thank you very much.